welcome to The Shipping Exchange, a brand new podcast that aims to explore the latest developments in the maritime industry, brought to you by the Honourable Company of Master Mariners and Maritime London, and presented by me, Graham Fisher. In today's episode, we're going to look at autonomous ships. Science fact or science fiction? Love them or loathe them, autonomous ships are coming. In what capacity remains unclear, but according to Rolls-Royce, autonomous shipping is the future of the maritime industry. As disruptive as the smartphone, the smart ship will revolutionise the landscape of ship design and operation. Around 80% of marine casualties are caused by human error, so it's understandable that shipping companies are searching for ways to reduce costs and risk to the crew and marine environment. But according to some estimates, autonomous shipping will cost 10-15% to 15% more to construct and operate than current manned vessels. Automation in other industries is developing at an unprecedented rate, namely within the automotive and aviation industries. So what lessons are there to be learned? And is it as simple as copy-paste of technologies and legislation into the maritime industry? Similar to the risk posed by cybersecurity, autonomous shipping is appearing to cause an element of doubt amongst insurers, lawyers and policymakers. In this episode, we will look at what value, if any, autonomous shipping can provide to the industry, whether the benefits really outweigh the costs, and how does the industry plan on deploying autonomous vessels? I'm joined today by three guests. Robert Carrington, Policy Advisor at the UK Chamber of Shipping, Bernard Toomey from Rolls-Royce, and John Lloyd, CEO of the Nautical Institute. So, Robert, science fact, science fiction, autonomous ships. Oh, that's a (laughs) good way to go straight into it. The technology is already there. I mean, companies like uh, Rolls-Royce, Wartzilla, Imosat, and others like that have got the equipment and the technology is is there. But um, before we can really answer that, the first question we have to ask is where the first sort of hurdle is, is what is autonomy, the definition? I mean, you have the IMO have their own version of it. You have all the classification societies have their different versions. For example, Lloyd's had... At one point, the six levels of autonomy, which have now been renamed the levels of accessibility because of the confusion over autonomy. At the beginning, and particularly through the media, there was a sort of a confusion over it with certain people sensationalising it by saying autonomy is immediately unmanned ships and sort of leaving out everything else in between. And so there has been a bit of a steer to focusing purely on unmanned ships and then what actually autonomy is. Hmm. So Bernard, from Rolls-Royce's uh, perspective, what, what is automation and autonomy in, in shipping to, to you? What we have to remember is that autonomous shipping doesn't mean unmanned vessels. There are various levels of, of autonomy, and it's a term that was actually being put forward initially, but realistically what you look at it as what the IMO have actually done, there are levels of autonomy from actually having people on board the vessel with high degrees of technology to a completely unmanned, uh, unattended vessel. What we have to remember is that this is not a binary state and we can't turn around and say that uh, a vessel is fully autonomous throughout its complete operating profile. So if we take a standard voyage where we're alongside and then we go to uh, pilotage, pilotage then to Uh, manoeuvring, manoeuvring, deep sea and then back again. You can have a situation where the allocation of function between the human and the technology really needs to be defined. What are you expecting the human to do under a certain evolution of the vessel and what are you expecting the technology to do? And unless you understand the fundamentals and start breaking it down 
in terms of what's the, what's the fundamentals, what's the task analysis and the allocation of function, you'll never be able to determine what level of autonomy is actually required for that particular voyage. Now, let's be clear on this, right? You've mentioned a number of things initially. Although the technology is there, there are a number of issues. One is that the industry is bound by SOLAS. And SOLAS is a, a statutory instrument that we have to comply with. But what we are finding is that within the industry itself, we're ending up with new players coming into the fold that we have to consider. Because in the future, the IMO may not have the sole legal jurisdiction over the maritime autonomous infrastructure. I'll clarify that. Once we start getting things like land-based control systems, you're no longer solely governed by maritime law. You have to then comply with land-based law, whatever that remote operating centre is located. So the subject is vast. It's not one simple answer for you, but um, don't be frightened about the introduction of this technology. It's been introduced for specific reasons. So, John, the Nautical Institute have done you know a great deal of research into you know a plethora of areas in the maritime industry. So, do you think, from your research and understanding, is there is there a need for autonomy in the maritime industry, particularly linking to some of the uh, comments which Berners raised? I think we should recognise that autonomy is already there. Um, it's not unmanned ships, it's not ships on international voyages, but already we're using autonomy um, extensively on board, autonomy and automation. If we think about the autopilot controlling the heading, we've got track control available for our vessels. We have remote engine monitoring, whether from the shore or more usually on board the ship as well. Um, if we think of our healing tanks that keep the vessels upright when they're handling um, containers in port, um, all these things are set and calibrated, ready to use in an autonomous mode uh, already. And I think the, uh, the key here is to recognise um, that the improvements in technology, the, the ability to manage data more effectively and more widely, gives an opportunity for increased efficiency. And if we can uh, increase efficiency and effectiveness, then we can design these things to improve safety. And really, that, that's the end solution that we would be looking for. So, Robert, you mentioned about the perhaps project fear or the hysteria around, you know, seafarers, no more jobs, you know, all completely autonomous vessels. So what are we heading for? Are we heading for still having seafarers or a need for seafarers at sea or or we're going to be having in the next 5, 10, 20 years just completely autonomous ships on the high seas? Thank you for using uh, the Brexit phrase at the beginning there, <laughs> or project fear. I wouldn't really say it's project fear, more sort of an misunderstanding of it and with certain actors probably exaggerating the use of it and which hasn't been helped also on the international scale that you have certain countries are sort of going about it their own way. Someone said there's an autonomy arms race going on, which there is on the military side but on the civilian side it is more an evolution rather than a revolution. So when you're saying asked about uh, 20 years where we're going to end up. Firstly, with the IMO, and as Bernard mentioned, with SOLAS and with all the other instruments of the IMO, specifically there's minimum manning, that getting that removed will never be removed, so there will always be a need for a certain number of seafarers on it. And as mentioned by John over there, that yes, it will lead to an increase in efficiency, and that so the increase of autonomy on the vessel will free up the seafarers and increase to more valuable roles, which could add as I said, increase in efficiency and commercial value of the seafarer. Skills. There will be a huge increase in skills. And also, we are talking about roles in 15, 20 years, which we don't even know if, what the roles will be. And it is the need for the industry to adapt 
to this and prepare the seafarers for these potential unknown skills, whatever they may be. So John, in relation to skills, how, how can we prepare seafarers now or for the future? I, I, I think that's a, a really interesting question and, and the point here is that, as Robert said, uh, anticipating the skills that we need for the future and maybe for the first time when we look at our regulatory environment, we're in a position of understanding what those skills might be. Hitherto our regulations have been built upon uh, serious maritime casualties which have informed the design of ships and pollution prevention and now we know the sort of skills that are required um, in dealing and managing effectively advanced technologies. And those are decision-making skills. They're analytical skills from the data that's available to us, from making the best possible decisions from a number of choices that um, can be delivered in real time uh, against a backdrop of better informed information on weather, on currents, on uh, sea states, on port arrival times. So we're actually creating a bunch of information there which needs managing and at some point within that supply chain of information it requires a human intervention to make the best possible decision. So we need to equip the mariners who are going to be involved in that decision making process with the skills to do that. And my concern at the moment is that because of the way that SDCW, which is a great document, but if we're going to get the best from our staff in the future, we need to give them additional skills. And that means more training, not less training. And I think we would all share the view uh, that in many cases there hasn't been an appetite for doing anything above and beyond that which has been required by the statutory regulations. So we need a bit of a change of mindset there, mm. a change of mindset that recognises we still need to deal with basic competency, good competency. I think we are pretty good at that, and I think SDCW defines that well. What it perhaps does less well is to enable us to look around the corner and invest the time, the commitment and the energy into giving the seafarers the skills for the next generation. You know, in, in the intro we said that 80% of marine casualties are caused by some level of human error. But put that into the context of autonomous ships, is there going to be a stage at which some vessels have some level of autonomy where you then cannot predict the actions or the decision-making process of completely manned vessels or vessels which have a limited level of autonomy, could that then result in more accidents happening? I think the question is quite a complex one and, and even the, the opening premise that um, seafarers, mariners, human error um, caused 80% of accidents, of course the statistics will tell us what the statistics tell us. What they don't tell us is where there's been a human intervention that has overridden something that autonomy was going to do um, or automation was going to do and where they've actually created a safer environment by having that human intervention. The very nature of accident investigation isn't going to provide that sort of data for us. So we need to look quite widely in that context. Part of the picture is that we will have a significant period of time where we will have more automated ships working in the same environment as uh, manned ships. So we will need protocols and we will need arrangements where ships which might be controlled in one way are interfacing effectively with those which are fully manned. And ships last for many, many years. And when we, we look at those skills for the future, you know, we haven't got a worldwide building program of autonomous ships. So we're a long way down the line. I think one of the analogies I use is when the planet decided that we would put men on the moon. We had a destination, we had a goal, we wanted to do that. And we achieved that by putting men on the moon. Well, we don't do that anymore. We don't need to do that. What we learned on that 
uh, during that passage of time was a huge amount about technology, capability, computing skills, control systems and all the rest of it. And in a way, this journey towards automation and autonomy will give us a lot more um, skills, information, technology, control and so on. So it will add great value. Um, but I don't think we should predict too firmly the final outcome of what yeah. that's going to look like. So Bernard, with, with that point there, Rolls-Royce are doing a, you know, a great deal of, of research into the potential of technologies. What is the, what is the real need? What is the drive of, of, of autonomous ships and the science behind it? Is it so that we can prove a point that it can be done? Uh, are we going to be following perhaps the same footsteps? I think you've already heard this is about safety. The ultimate goal here is to make systems safer, but also the fact is there's uh, an underlying economic benefit because no ship owner is going to buy something solely on safety. They have to get an economic return uh, to invest in the technology itself. What you have to remember is that I, I take your point about what the seafarers, the future is going to look like. You use the term seafarer and, and I, I would advise you using that term. And the reason is legally a seafarer is somebody who's on board a ship. We could be in the next 20 years looking at the last generation of people who actually ever stepped foot on board a vessel, but they would still be operating within the marine autonomous infrastructure. The skills required to operate with that infrastructure itself are going to be significantly different to what you, you have today. I think one of the biggest challenges we're going to have is that the traditional seafaring techniques, is whether you're a navigating officer or whether you're an engineering officer, uh, rely on um, very much the skills of the individuals. It's the touch, it's the feel, it's the sound, the vibration, etc. Now, if I'm going to put those skills, those people, within a land-based environment, which is highly likely, then how do we give them that same level of um, sense of what's actually happening with the platform that they're actually controlling? So this is a completely new environment for us. And do we take these people from the current maritime environment and train them up or do we bring people in with different skills because you're interacting with a software-based solution do we take people from the gaming world and we train them within the maritime environment itself is there a risk there though of losing people who are very competent very experienced in in the industry if you have new technology new trained individuals and then you say to the likes of even senior officers who've been in sea for many years you know your 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 skills your experience isn't needed anymore because you're not prepared to adapt is it do we have a risk there of perhaps uh, disenfranchising or creating a rift within the seafaring community of old and new? So you still need to understand people who know the interaction between the technology. So if you, t if you take the two separate, the navigational side of it is you're always going to need compliance with the call regs. The other side of it is in terms of the machinery technology, that's going to be completely different as we are finding out now. So what you have to look at is look at the automotive industry, the way that worked. I mean, when I was a youngster, I could take an engine out of a car, I could repair it, I could put it back in and get it running within a weekend. Now, I have to wait for a sensor to tell me when to fill the windscreen washer bottle. But do we still have mechanics? Do we still have... In fact, we don't have mechanics anymore. We have technicians. They're at a slightly higher level. And they interact with the technology that will allow them to repair and diagnose modern technologies. So you have to look at it in a way as it's not about taking roles away. We're going to have different roles within the maritime sector itself. And in fact, I think it's going to, it's going to generate more interest because on, on a traditional vessel, even today, if a brand new vessel is put into the water today, the technology that you're actually working with is, could be guaranteed as obsolete. They don't last that long. But what are you going to be doing ashore? You're going to be interacting with a lot of these different technologies. No two ships are the same. 
as you know, even sister ships ferry. And you need to be able to adapt and understand the fundamental processes to allow that engineering system to function. So I see there's massive opportunities in the future. And you ask me one about what the drivers are. Well, it depends on which ship owner you actually talk to. So to give you an example, on the Far East, they've turned around and said the reason that they want the introduction of the technology is A, for safety, but they can't get the competent seafarers now to interact with the technologies which they currently face with. STCW has not kept up to date with the technologies which are currently on board vessels. That links into the next question, Robert, is that do you find, particularly from a chamber of shipping uh, perspective, do you take lessons from the, maybe the automotive industry, how you know, they predict autonomous vehicles by 2020 or 2021? You ever look at that and think, where does shipping come into that? You know, is a lesson that we can learn there? Of course. I mean, with the chamber, we've always looked at other industries in all sorts of areas, particularly safety, going back to that point, specifically the railway industry. 20, 30 years ago, the level of fatalities, it was considerably higher than it is now. You may see sort of the efficiency of it has not particularly increased, but... Uh, no, not my train this morning. No, no, I mean, delays uh, speak to, the, to that. But um, on the safety level, the railway industry have come up with a system which is safe. And also, railway, not particularly in this country, but, for example, in Australia, they have a fully automated train there, and sort of the lessons which went into that... So leading on to the next question is that there's there's an onus on the efficiency on fuel, efficiency on safety, space, design. What about risk? How is it possible to quantify risk of a technology which is not necessarily new worldwide but in, a, applicable to the maritime industry is still in that preliminary stages. Well, let's take a step back. Right? When we start working within a risk framework, we need to understand what the ultimate goal is. And one ship owner turned around and said to us that the ultimate goal is to deliver cargo safely. The next statement they turn on and said, no single point event shall result in a key hazard taking place. And that's quite a profound statement. So when you start breaking it down and turn around and say, is what are the high level goals that you really want to achieve? And then you engineer and whatever you do downstream, you ensure that you engineer that system such that you always been able to meet that high level requirement. So to give you an example on this one, we can't have a single engine in that configuration if the ultimate goal is to no single point eventual result in a key hazard. Key hazard, by the way, in this case, is loss of an essential service, power and propulsion and steering. What, what happens then is, once you start decomposing that down to lower levels, you suddenly find your ship is now being designed in such a way that it more or less mirrors the DP3 architecture. I'm sure some of you listeners will be aware of what that actually means. So those are the sort of things that you, you need to understand. But the industry, if we're moving down that particular route, we're actually more aligning it to what happens within the military environment. Well, the military within the UK are really good working within the safety case environment. The railway industry works within the safety case environment, so does the aero sector. And we are, within the maritime sector, traditionally way behind. But remember, once I start going down this route and the production of a safety case, that safety case has to be maintained throughout the life of that asset. You can't just turn around and say, I'm going to do it for the period of time that I own the vessel. When that owner wants to sell that vessel and that asset and still operate it autonomously, then the new owner has to have the same infrastructure in place to allow that to work. The safety case for a vessel has to be maintained. So we're working down a completely different regime now. So is the case of we either all do it or those that do do it will have 
a disadvantage in the future, you think? All that has to be taken into consideration. You can't just turn around and say, I'm going to build an autonomous ship. That's great if you want to take it from the next 35 years or how long you want to keep the vessel. But if you intend to sell that vessel, then one of the requirements are you have to be able to maintain the safety case. And that's why the military are exceptionally good at doing this. They maintain the safety case throughout the life of that asset. When it comes to insurance, when it comes to the adopting of new technologies, there is perhaps one insurer which will say it's worth £100 and another insurer that will say it's a million pounds. Can, is there any common ground? Because at the moment, the, the development, the, the avenues which different companies, organisations are taking, some are planning for complete automation, some are planning for reduced crew. You know, is there any common ground where we can find uh, a consensus of what are the risks between vessels? Listen, I think Bernard's raised a whole raft of really interesting issues there, and particularly when he went on to the, the technology side of things and the sale of ships. And that makes me think about the, the transferability of technology um, and why it's important that the industry as a whole has got a strong grasp on the changes that we're making. If we look, for example, when we implemented ECDIS, it was a great step forward in terms of capability. But what we had was a whole range of manufacturers designing different pieces of kit with insufficient consistency in terms of operation and modes of use that led to a huge training requirement, unsafe operations because of the complexity and the inconsistency in a number of environments. Bernard also made the point that no two ships are alike, so we're different from the aviation industry where there's a much stronger bonding to a class of aircraft, if you like, and you can ensure that consistency. So I do think that as we develop these ships, these capabilities, there need to be some strong protocols about interchanges and, and consistency in terms of how that's done. We, we don't have a, a strong regulatory environment that will support the level of changes of which technology could support at the moment. So with that, with that point of legislation, then the first vessels that we're going to see on operating autonomously are within national waters in China or in Scandinavia. Is that a result of the international legislation not keeping up, not understanding fully? What's the driver behind it not being on a full scale yet, you know, a deep sea vessels? Mm, it's a six million dollar question indeed yeah. so let, let's take the projects which are currently out there i'm sure everybody's aware of the sisu project which took place last year a remotely controlled tug that was operated within danish water so there we had a, a danish owner we had danish crew we dealt with the danish maritime association danish ports so it was all governed within one nation state there was a lot of discussions took place with all the various stakeholders and there was a common agreement on the, the identification of the risks in the operation of this particular vessel. You'll see the same things happening now, as you mentioned, in other parts of the world, like China and, and Singapore and, and Norway, for instance. And yes, they are within coastal waters. So you are quite correct. It's much easier to contain. But let, let's, let's take a, a situation, as, as of today, where we have a ship registered, say, in Liberia. The ship is owned by a Greek ship owner. The ship is operating within US territorial waters. But the actual remote operating center is somewhere, say, like Kazakhstan. Thought of a sudden is you start thinking about, well, how many stakeholders, what is the legal framework around that? Because there is no international legislation to allow this to take place. As it currently stands today, there's nothing to prevent it either. I think what's going to happen in the, in the near future anyway will end up things with uh, coastal states, uh, nation states operating within national waters, we may see in the very near future bilateral agreements between two nation states, but it's going to take a long, long time to get the IMO in place. Now, one of the things you have to remember as well is that if, for instance, 
where we sit in now is a control centre. We are governed by the Health and Safety of Work Act in the UK. You're not governed by maritime law. So in a building within the UK, so where I work within Rolls-Royce, and if I'm operating a ship and that ship is in the Solent, if a fire alarm goes off in the building in which I sit, I am required by Rolls-Royce's policy to leave the building. You don't do that on a ship. What you do, you contain it, you fight the fire and you control the environment. So all of a sudden is I've got land-based requirements placed on me as an operator. So all of a sudden, when you start looking at this about the level of complexity between the link between land-based requirements and the maritime environment, is something which is going to be extremely challenging. And at the moment, it's not being discussed at the IMO. It's about the maritime autonomous infrastructure. It's not about solely about the ship. So I suppose, Robert, that's where the, the chamber comes in then, because if autonomous shipping is to develop, more than just maritime law needs to develop... How, how do you think that's going to be achieved? Well, the first step it, step is that DFT is, um, I have to say, being incredibly proactive in this. They are releasing things like Maritime 2050, Smart Shipping Roadmap, where they are looking particularly at all the sort of particular advancements in all of it. It has the political will from the highest levels. So there is definitely there is support for it. They have um, sort of the mechanisms in place and they have the plans in place where they are looking, but they're heading in the right direction. You know, the Nautical Institute is, is a driving force for, for training and, and advice on training and development in the industry. But when you think of some of the, the scenarios or situations that we've raised, such as you know, control centres on land, I know as a seafarer, when I'm in a simulator, it feels somewhat unnatural to when you then compare that to being on an actual vessel. What more needs to be done in terms of training so that those on land know exactly how it feels, how the vessels will act, but if they just see on a screen just a, a vessel moving around, but they're not actually there, you know, there's, there's certainly um, perhaps a shortfall there in, in, in training or something that more needs to be done. There is a balance between the cost of uh, a trainee's lifetime as a trainee before they become productive as a qualified officer. So there is that pressure of time. Um, And I think one of the features of maritime education at the moment is that we tend to learn things in blocks. And we try and overcome that with some time in the simulator where we're bringing all of the constituent parts together. And that's hugely useful, but it is incredibly constrained on time. So it is about more time. I'll give you an example. You know, when I get in my car um, of 10 years ago, I have a map. I open the map. I can look at it and I go, yes, that's the route I'm going to follow. Now I open up my phone, I've got a Google map or something similar, it's tracking traffic for me in real time, I can select whether I'm going to go on A roads, B roads, toll roads, uh, avoid traffic, have fewer junctions, whatever it might be. That's a complementary skill set, so actually I've got to learn a lot more, not less, if I'm going to use that technology effectively. And I don't think the maritime industry has grasped that. I don't think it's grasped it for one minute. And that's what we need to invest in in the future. We still have uh, a training system which is set up for predominantly paper-based navigation um, when electronic navigation is now the, the new thing. Are we perhaps getting ahead of ourselves with autonomous ships? Well, I do think that idea of being onshore controlling our ships is still a long way away. And at the moment, I think we've got a responsibility to make sure that our staff, our seafarers, can use the technology that they've got at the moment. And you make exactly a, a good point, which rather supports mine, about blocks of training. Um, we add on ECTIS training onto the syllabus. You know, it took years before that became a core part of the syllabus. Um, 
we spend insufficient time uh, looking at how bridge teams work effectively, how we integrate pilots into the bridge team, how we can utilise uh, the, the power of shore-based monitoring to assist the safe navigation of our ships. Um, and that doesn't come quickly. And the regulators have got a, a responsibility here, or, or an opportunity, if you like, to think about how can we accept an equivalence, uh, an equivalence that's equally as good professionally, delivers safer outcomes, but perhaps isn't within the very strict words of things that have been written down in STCW. So, Bernard, you're, you're a seafarer yourself. Should seafarers now perhaps be worried? What, what, what should we expect? We, we rely heavily on computers already for monitoring of cargo, ballast, distribution, etc. Is it a case that we arrive in port, we press a button and, you know, we go to bed? Is it, what, what, what sort of levels should we expect in, in, in the next coming years? So the last thing you want to do is be worried. In fact, if I was in your position now, I wouldn't be worried, I'd be really excited. The role of the traditional seafarer, I think, is going to change and we have to adapt, as you mentioned, the fact with the cars and etc. And it's about an evolution, if you want to say, not a revolution that's going to take place. What we have to do is ensure that when the technology is actually implemented within the marine environment itself, that whoever's operating these systems or even monitoring, operating, maintaining these systems are actually trained adequately. The IMO are doing a job at the moment, they're heading in the right direction, but unfortunately they're heading at a very slow pace because that's the way they actually work, but industry is moving at a very fast pace. And there is a gap forming. And people within various working groups, organisations, we've got the IMRS, which is within the UK, is absolutely brilliant. They've got human element working groups, they've got groups looking at training, we've got within Europe itself, Norway, look in these particular areas, you've got the University of York to look at the robotics and automation side of it, and in that, there's a huge area there for training, human factors and, and training of the uh, individuals who are going to interact with the technology. So to answer your question, should you be frightened? Absolutely not. I, I would love to be where, where you are now. I think this is going to be the most challenging environment uh, for, for any sector. You, you have an opportunity to change the way in which the industry actually operates. I've and seen. I think that's phenomenally exciting. There's a, I think it's Rolls-Royce have released a video which got me quite excited when looking at it. You know, you come up to the bridge and the, the seat will move, the settings will adjust automatically to exactly the, how I want them. The track will be sort of displayed, and that looks absolutely fantastic. But does that require a more streamlined approach between manufacturers? Because if that system is going to be completely integrated between you know, your GPS, your, your ECDIS, your radars, do we need more than just research and science by universities, organisations? Do we need companies, you know, Transas, Furuno, to be getting on board and saying we will produce an autonomous ship, an autonomous bridge by us and only us similar to the aviation industry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that's, that's one of the key areas that uh, has been brought up at the moment. But that means you have to treat it as an integrated system. And I, I, I've introduced a term you're called integration, integration within the other sectors like the aerochemical, nucleus, pharmaceutical, rail are done really well. And even in the military it's done really well. Unfortunately, within the commercial marine, we, it's, a, it's a term which when you throw it out there, what do you mean by integration? It's, I don't know, it depends on which side of the table you actually sit, what it actually means. The bridge now, as you say, has to be dealt with as an integrated system. It has to link to the rest of the ship. So what we're actually looking at is we're looking at the ship as a system of systems. And if you look at the business model as it currently stands for building ships, you could probably say that it's going against the introduction of autonomy. So it's not just 
the legal framework, it's also the business framework and the business model needs to change. Absolutely. So, John, with that system of systems that Bern has mentioned there, is that a role of engineers? Is that a role of navigators? Obviously, we have ETOs. Are we going to be seeing equal numbers of ETOs being produced? Whose responsibility is it going to be for maintaining systems? I think it's one of those areas where actually the the strength of the team will be greater than any of the individuals that, that bringing bringing people together um, with the I say the vested interests the shared interests uh, in the best possible outcome and that's the designers it's the manufacturers it's the operators um, it's the account holders who are paying for it you know there will be that balance between effectiveness and Bernard's touched on it a couple of times there's a really important aspect here and that's about the the business case the solutions which we come up with have to be cost effective or they're just not going to happen um, ship owners will be looking for a positive return uh, on their investments. So Robert, with the, with the work that the DFT are doing, Chamber of Shipping and whatnot, do you think the IMO are comfortable with the idea that perhaps they might not be in sole control of legislation or the developments relating to autonomous ships, despite the clue being in the, in the name of the IMO? wouldn't particularly want to uh, sort of guess what uh, goes on through the, sort of the mindset um, of the IMO. Uh, well, I mean, I'll try and have a have a crack. Uh, well done, maturing. Oh yeah, no, I <laughs> if I flounder horribly, please jump in. So they have the regulatory exercise going on at the moment, which is of June 2020, where they are looking, as Bernard said, at all the key instruments and how automation or unmanned ships specifically can fit into these existing instruments, and from that identify what needs to be changed. Between the particular committees, there is a bit of the secretariat where they're combining the legal committee, uh, the marine environments committee and I think facilitation where they are all looking at the different aspects and particularly in the legal committee almost certainly someone would have considered you would hope the impact regarding other sort of laws and um, legal instruments from other areas which would be done in it. What I do know is that the DFT as you mentioned uh, have taken this into consideration along with the MCA and they are talking to their land-based legal teams. And, and I will say one thing, the same thing's happening in Finland, and the Finnish are actually talking to their land-based counterparts. But it's not at the IMO level. It's actually done through nation-state side. Mm. This is actually happening. And it has to happen, because the level of complexity now we're introducing into the maritime environment requires a slightly different thought process to ensure that we end up with a safe state. It may not be happening at the IMO level, but I can guarantee you it's happening at nation-state level. So, as a, as a final thought then, cybersecurity and autonomous shipping are kind of go hand-in-hand. Hand. It's a very, very real risk. John, any, any thoughts on what, what what's the level of... Um, training or required or development that's required to if we are going to have more automation in the industry what more needs to be done to protect it and protect against environmental catastrophes you know risk to life risk to uh, personnel and equipment on board i think the the issues around cyber security have been well promulgated and well discussed and yet despite that it's it's not enough it's a message we continue to to press in a very positive way and we need to there's really not a good grasp of 
uh, the implications of corrupting um, the systems through a cyber attack. And still we see people behaving badly with flash drives and introducing them to areas where they shouldn't do. We, we need to make sure that as we're developing solutions that address the risk of cyber attack, that we're coming up with user-friendly solutions so that we don't take shortcuts. So we're aware of the risks, but because the solutions are not easy to adopt, we sometimes ignore them or think it won't happen to us. Part of that is that when cyber attacks do occur and companies are very significantly affected, it's kept very low profile. It isn't put out there and look what happened to us. The work must continue in keeping uh, mariners and all users uh, aware and well informed of the, the risks from cyber security attacks. Oh, absolutely. I mean, cyber is, has been a threat since uh, the first computer was invented the first hacker was born. As um, John said, the problem is with cyber is the level of reporting on that. And also, as the hackers are getting more and more intelligent, a lot of operators, in some cases, aren't even aware that they have been hacked. And then when the invest- investigators go there, they find uh, the hackers have actually been in the system for two years. And Bernard, from uh, Rolls-Royce point of view, and factoring in the cybersecurity element of developing these new technologies? Our approach is we don't separate our cybersecurity from the technology. It's the same way building a hull of a ship, we don't talk about watertight integrity. It's a given. And cybersecurity and technology is a given. You can't separate it up. It's impossible. They're inherently linked. A couple of things you need to understand here is that why this is important. But also you need to understand as well is that there is a, within the insurance market, a thing called a cyber risk attack clause, which is called CL380. What it looks at is a, if it's proven that it's a malicious attack intending to cause harm, it can actually be that policy will actually void the insurance. So therefore the ship owner is liable. It's an uninsurable risk. So basically it means that the person who walks up the gangway and saying, oh, I'll just plug my pen drive in, is not really a malicious attack intended to cause harm. And that results in the same thing, like a grounding, oil pollution, or loss of life. That can end up in an uninsurable risk. So the issue here is, again, is why is this important? The important is that you can actually, you can actually put a company out of business, and that's, that's the bottom line on this one. So what you need to understand is, if, if I do put my pen drive in, and I do have a problem, and I end up grounding my ship, and I get an oil spill, for instance, the chances are, if this um, cyber risk attack clause CL380 is invoked, it's an uninsurable risk. Certainly a market on the move for insurance perspective, I think. Um, Yeah, you've got to be very careful because this risk was actually put in place. They want to amend it. It's not been done yet. So my advice to everybody who's listening is keep your pen drives in your pocket. Yeah. All right? second that advice i think after listening to what we've uh, discussed so yeah i think that brings us to the end of our episode on autonomous ships uh, we've had a really brilliant discussion there on the the risks the benefits the future and what it might hold for autonomous shipping i've been joined by robert carrington from the uk chamber of shipping bernard toomey from rolls royce and john lloyd chief exec of the nautical institute thank you for coming on the show thank you well, thank you very much you. for having us thank you for listening to the shipping exchange we hope you enjoyed the show And if you did, it would be great if you could leave us a comment and subscribe for future episodes. You can also find us across all of social media and at our website, and the links can be found below in the bio. And we hope that you can join us again soon.